Hi everyone, I'm your local IJM race marshal recruiter. And we need race marshal volunteers. And this is my fourth year as a race marshal. That means I wear the orange vest and I tell people where to go on the course. And we need 18 to 20 people to help us. So, um, Matthew, that's you. I'm speaking to you. <laughs> he was my partner last year. So, 18 to 20 people, and you can sign up. You, we need your name and an email address. Uh, we'll give you the instructions. It's going to be about July 9th, Wednesday night. You'll have to be there about 5 p.m. It'll last about 8 p.m. Uh, please consider that. Um, one other thing about the Asante Children's Choir, we're going to partner with Peace Church, and there's going to be a concert July 23rd, which is Wednesday. And uh, Peace is going to house the kids for three nights, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We're going to house the kids Thursday, Friday. So a uh, little bigger picture, that's what we need. We need your help for two nights. And the kids are going to be free during the day, and they're probably going to be at the office, uh, at the bridge offices during the day. They will have chaperones, and they will all come with a chaperone to your house. And Bridge Kids, thank you. You are dismissed. You can go join your teachers. Today we're going to talk about marriage, plan A. Marriage is a good thing, but this is a difficult passage. Some passages are feel-good passages. Some passages are more difficult, and this is a more difficult passage. People's view on marriage and what constitutes a marriage are continually changing. A 2011 research study interviewed single women and single men aged 18 to 36. They found uh, a wide, right, widespread fears about divorce, even among those whose parents had not been divorced. They interviewed 122 cohabitating couples, that is, couples who lived together before marriage, and found clues as to why they were not married. Two-thirds of the respondents worried about their ability to form a lasting marriage relationship. These respondents mentioned their desire to do it right, quote, and marry only once to the ideal partner. They were concerned about the consequences of failed marriages as mentioning things like emotional pain, social embarrassment, child custody issues, and legal and financial problems. In another research study, Scott Stanley, coordinator of the Center for Marital and Family Studies at the University of Denver, found that, quote, men who cohabit with women they eventually marry are less committed to the union than men who never lived with their spouses ahead of time, according to the USA Today. Stanley uh, concludes that men who drift into marriage after a period of cohabitation are high risks. The study also concluded that a major influencing factor influencing young Americans in this lifestyle is the fear of divorce. Experts believe this is because many people who choose to live together first have a low regard for the institution of marriage. Data from the University of Wisconsin, Madison, provides more painful information, according to the Washington Bureau. Couples that cohabit before marriage increase their odds of divorce 50%. Researchers found that couples who live together before marriage, only 15 out of 100 of those couples who were married survived a decade. 
In other research reported in the Chicago Tribune, researcher Elizabeth Marquardt states that many people in our research have bought into the myth of the, quote, good divorce. This research showed that even though kids grew up with the so-called good divorce, meaning that uh, it was one in which their parents got along reasonably well after the divorce, one in which both parents stayed involved in their children's lives. Um, The results say they still suffered negative effects. For example, twice as many children of divorce say they felt like a different person with each parent, twice as many as compared to intact children from intact families. Three times as many agreed with this statement, I was alone a lot as a child, um, and seven times as many from divorced families, so-called good divorced families, strongly agreed with this statement, I was alone a lot as a child. Two-thirds of the kids from intact families went to a parent when they needed comfort. Only one-third of the children of divorce went to a parent for comfort. They went to their friends or their siblings for comfort. 64% said life was stressful in their family. 64% from divorced homes. 25% said their life was stressful from intact families. Three times as many said they love their mother but don't respect her from divorced families. Four times as many said they loved their father but did not respect their fathers. So what's my point? What people think about marriage and what people think about divorce is changing. My question to you is what do you think about marriage? And what do you think about divorce? Because what you think, what you believe has a powerful influence on the way you live. Today, Jesus addresses the subject of divorce with a discussion about marriage. So we're going to join in the discussion. This is a great thing about preaching through the Bible because you have to cover all the passages. And when you get to the difficult ones, you just have to teach them. And here we go. Question about divorce, plan B. This is Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, the question about divorce. And if you have an outline, you can uh, encourage you to follow along in your outline. And it kind of helps to take notes if you like. First, the context in verse 1. Jesus then left that place. We've got to find out what place. Then went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him. And as was his custom, he taught them. So Jesus has been in northern Israel. Remember that? He's been up uh, in the Galilean area. He's been on the north shore last. We saw him at the city of Capernaum where his headquarters were in most of his public ministry. And uh, now he's headed south. And he has an ultimate destination. Remember what that ultimate destination is? It's Jerusalem and the cross. But we're about six months out from there at this time. So there's the map. And uh, he'd been up north. He's come straight down south. You see the Jordan River between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. He's come down south. And before he gets to Jerusalem, he crosses east Crossed the Jordan River, and that's where he is right now. He's in the southern part. He's on the east side of the Jordan. This is where 
uh, John the Baptist had his public ministry. This is where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And so uh, this is where we find Jesus today. The test question is verse 2. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So, remember the Pharisees are religious leaders of Israel. They're experts on the Old Testament scriptures. They question Jesus not because they need more knowledge or more information about the subject. It says they wanted to test him. Uh, They're hoping they're going to be able to entrap him. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has encountered the Pharisees. In fact, they just kind of followed him around looking for opportunities to mess with him. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 6, this is what we see. Um, Then the Pharisees went out and began a plot with the Herodians. They were sort of political figures with a tie to King Herod. Then the Pharisees went out and began a plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So clear back in Mark chapter 3, earlier in the ministry, there were people looking out for an opportunity to entrap Jesus. They wanted to kill him. He was their Messiah, and they don't get it. And then um, verse 22 in chapter 3, And the teachers of the law who came from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So they accuse Jesus of being possessed by Satan himself. And they were saying, Jesus, we get that you have supernatural power, but it's no good. It's not from God. So they were looking for opportunities to entrap him. Then we come to chapter 8 and verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They ask him for a sign from heaven. He just fed 4,000 people. Kind of a miracle, you know. We would call that a sign to authenticate the message and the messenger. And um, he, he does this miracle, and now they want a sign. And, gee, I think he just gave them one. Um, so Pharisees have this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What will Jesus say? Who will he offend? Is he going to offend some of the religious leaders or another group of religious leaders because there are sort of religious political parties here? And also, here's a big issue. John the Baptist was arrested because he offended Herod Antipas and his wife Herodias because they both divorced their marriage partners and then got remarried to each other And John the Baptist said, you ought not do that. That offends God. John got arrested. Herodias was mad. And Herodias made sure John's head got cut off. So here's Jesus. And they're going to, these leaders are asking him, what do you, tell us about divorce. Because they think, hey, you're going to offend Herod. That's one of the options here to offend Herod. The scripture question, uh, verse 3, what did Moses command you, he replied. So uh, Jesus is going to take them to the text. Moses was the lawgiver. He is the one who wrote down 613 commandments of the Old Testament. And so what did Moses command you? Now, the Pharisees are the experts in the law. They're supposed to know these things. And so Jesus is going to take them right to the text. What is written in the scriptures? Verse 4, the prevailing views. They said, Moses 
permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24. We're going to look at that in just a minute. Deuteronomy chapter 24, actually verses 1 through 4. So they're saying Moses permitted the man to, to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Well, maybe he did. Maybe that's not quite accurate. Um, but it's also what they practice during this time in the first century. There were two major schools of thought in uh, Jewish life in those days who gave interpretation of the law, and especially on this subject of Deuteronomy chapter 24. One uh, was the school of Rabbi Shammai, and Rabbi Shammai was a conservative scholar. We would be comfortable with his view of the text, and he took Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, and there is a part in there that refers to some kind of moral indiscretion, and his interpretation was this refers to basically adultery or serious sexual immorality. And he says that would be a reason that would permit someone to divorce his wife if she were involved in sexual immorality. The other school was Rabbi Hillel. Uh, Rabbi Hillel took this whole thing about divorce pretty far. Um, Basically, his interpretation that that a man could divorce his wife if he found anything displeasing to him. Now, it was not a woman's world. And it was a man's world. And um, a man could divorce his wife. There was no such thing for a woman to divorce her husband at this point. And uh, so... The Hillel school took this to be very liberal. So if a woman burnt her husband's breakfast and that displeased him, he could give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. If she talked too loud to the, and the neighbors overheard her and it displeased him, he could send her away with divorce papers in hand. If she, were, if she was not attractive enough and it displeased him, he could send her away. According to Rabbi Hillel, all you needed was a certificate of divorce. Somehow you had to obtain this legally within the law of Israel. And they believed then it was okay in God's eyes and uh, they could remarry. Um, But the certificate of divorce was not for the man to remarry. The certificate of divorce was so that the woman could remarry and not be blamed for the failure of the marriage. Really interesting twist on this. Um, And this is really important because women and children could not survive economically unless the woman remarried. So now how about this? Let's uh, look at the scriptural view, hopefully, Uh, We can identify this from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. This is a passage that's up for debate. This is a passage that the Pharisees are referring to in their question about divorce. Is it okay to divorce a woman and give her a certificate of divorce? If a man marries a woman, now please note how this lays out. 
There's no command here for divorce, all right? It's an if. Here's a case study. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. Okay, is there any command in there for divorce? No, it's describing a case study of a divorce. If this case happens, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, Rabbi Hillel focused on the displeasing part. That was his major focus. So let's find out what displeases the man, and then we'll make that a possibility for divorce. Rabbi Shammai focused on something indecent. And an accurate interpretation refers to some kind of sexual immorality. Okay? So that's where the debate comes in, in verse 1. But notice how the case unfolds, verse 2. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man. Next slide. And her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, because one of the things that's very true about marriage is death ends marriage. And if he dies, then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. What's this passage teaching? Its teaching is you can't go back to your first wife if you divorce her and send her away. Because if you do, you're causing her to commit adultery and you're committing adultery because you're not supposed to be married to her. That's what the passage is teaching. I can't say it's necessarily simple, but that's what the focus is. There is not a permission here given for divorce. Uh, Here's what the scripture says about sexual immorality and marriage. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. So what is this saying? Well, there is a consequence to sexual immorality. If you're married, you don't have any right to be involved with another partner. It's called adultery. And what's the, what's the consequence? It is death. That's God's plan for ending marriage. Is that somebody who cheats deserves death. This is the Old Testament law. Okay? That ends the marriage vow. That was how God did it. All right? Um... Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Apostle Paul says, Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over man only as long as he lives. For example, he's talking about the law of the Old Testament. Okay? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. 
So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress because she is bound to her first husband. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress even though she marries another man. So death brings freedom to the marriage vow, the marriage covenant. We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. So this was God's view of justice when it came to adultery, that death should take place. For example, Deuteronomy 22 and 23 and 24 is sort of another way of looking at an affair. If a man happens to meet in town a virgin pledged to be married and sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she was in town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife, you must purge the evil from among you. And if you remember that somebody engaged to be married was legally bound, just like Mary was legally betrothed to Joseph in their engagement before they actually had had their wedding. And again, in the Old Testament, justice was to put both Uh, parties to death in the case of adultery. Okay, that's really hard stuff, all right? Now, let's talk about the instructions about marriage, and I'm calling this Plan A, and I'm calling Divorce Plan B. Uh, Plan A, chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, verses 5 through 9. And we begin with divorce. Plan B was not God's intention. We see this in verse 5. Jesus said, It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. He's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, about this idea of if, if a wife has some indecency in her. And he's saying there was a, an allowance. This was permitted. It wasn't uh, okay. He said, it was because your hearts were hard that roses mote this law. It's because you were so self-centered. God came up with a case history on how to handle the aftermath of divorce. Justice was to put evil to death, to put so it's not like, oh, if you commit, if you commit adultery, you're, you're free to get remarried. Nope, that's not it. Uh, plan B was not God's intention. Next, marriage, plan A, was intended to be permanent, verses 6 through 9. Marriage by God design included male and female. This is what Jesus says in verse 6. But, Jesus said, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. This is so much like uh, I f- we find today in real life. Um, we have marriage. We have the foundation of marriage. And people want to come and find out what the exceptions are. How do I get out of this marriage? I want to get out. How do I get out? And Jesus, they came to Jesus with the same kind of question. And um, Jesus says, takes them right back to the foundation of marriage and what God intended. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And uh, Jesus is quoting Genesis chapter 1. A couple things about Genesis. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are about the creation. Genesis 1 is a panoramic view of the creation. 
all six days, all that God created, including male and female. When God was done, after he created female, he said, it's very good. But it was not until he created female that God say that. Chapter 2 is the creation account. It focuses on the sixth day, and it specifically focuses on the creation of man, male and female. So in Genesis, so first of all, Jesus refers to Genesis 1, from the beginning, God made them male and female. That's kind of important when it comes to marriage. Uh, and God commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply. God intended them to have a sexual relationship and to start a family. He gave them the responsibility to rule over all of creation. God has a very high view of man, and he put man in charge of everything, male and female, man and woman, he put in charge of everything. And um, so it's important that we see Jesus is taking these religious leaders back to the beginning. What was God's intention? What was God's purpose? What's God's original design? And this is before the law was written. The law was given because of sin. The law was given to show God's standards. But Genesis 1 and 2 go before the law and talk about God's design, what he intended, what's the best, what what, what was God doing here? Next we go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This would be great just to spend the whole time on Genesis 2. There came a time on day 6 where God said, It's not good for man to be alone. Thank God he said that. Uh, God said, I will make a helper suitable for for him. God said, I'm going to create someone for this man and, the, and this this person is going to be a helper suitable, suitable. Now, helper is a very good word. It's way more than just, you know, like an assistant or a sidekick. The word helper is used of God himself. It is not a low class word. The idea, and the helper that's suitable, the idea is that this creation is going to be a compliment because the man is made this way and I'm going to make the woman this way and she's going to be different. And she's going to be different physically and emotionally, sexually. They're going to be different. And uh, then we come uh, to verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall asleep. God is the one who's doing this, by the way. God planned this and God did it. The Lord God called caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, I'm going to read it up here. While he was sleeping, um, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. So, you know, God made the man and he made the man out of dirt. And now God is going to make the woman, but not out of dirt. He's going to cut the man and the man is going to make a little sacrifice here. And uh, I don't know, Adam may have had some pain over this. And God closed that uh, place up. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And I believe that God did it supernaturally just as he said. Because God could have did it, done it any way he wanted to. 
and he brought her to the man. Here's the, God did this. God brought the woman to the man. This was the first marriage. This was the model. This was the foundation of marriage. It was male and female. It was not male and male or female and female. They never would have been able to be fruitful and multiply. But this is the the original intention of God in creation. And that's where Jesus takes us. That's what Jesus wants us to see about marriage. Marriage is God's institution. Man didn't create it. Man didn't dream it up. Uh, Secondly, marriage, by God's design, created a unique one-flesh covenant relationship. This is God's design. A unique one-flesh covenant relationship. Jesus continues in Mark chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2.24. Let's see Genesis 2.24. This comes right after God presents the woman to the first man. And this is where we get the imagery in a wedding of the father walking down the aisle and giving the bride away, presenting the woman to the man with, with the father's blessing. That's what happened in Genesis chapter 2. This is why a man leaves his father. And this, is, this passage was written to establish for all time the foundation of marriage. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Here's what it's about. It's about leaving parents. It's about taking the most important human relationship that a child has and separating from it and making it secondary and now making a new relationship primary, a relationship with a husband or a wife. To be united to his wife speaks of a wedding, speaks of a commitment, speaks of... um, some kind of uh, ceremony, united to his wife, and they become one flesh. In Genesis chapter 2, God was a witness to the first marriage. It was more than a legal contract. It was a covenant, a covenantal relationship. Now we can... um, And and God designed the one flesh relationship um, to include a sexual relationship, but to include a safe place where husband and wife are committed to each other for a lifetime, where it would be safe to raise kids and express love and to bring instruction and mentoring and discipline where people are loved. That's what the one flesh unit is about. Um, Now we can learn about marriage Uh, sort of backwards by looking at the book of Malachi, 4th century B.C. This takes a negative look, but here's what we learn. Malachi is writing them because they have a low view of marriage and are practicing divorce. They have a high divorce rate, low view of marriage. Another thing you do, Malachi says, Malachi is a prophet. He's speaking for God. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? God, why don't you care about us? Why don't you help us? Why don't you answer our prayers? 
It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. God knows about how you treated your wives. He's saying, you've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner. The wife, next slide. Um, Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. And there's that key word, marriage covenant. Because it's more than a legal contract. A marriage covenant is a commitment before God, and he is a witness. And then God seals this. This is why it's a way bigger deal than a legal contract. And God seals this. He is the witness to this relationship. It's not the one God made you. You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Next slide. The man who hates and divorces his wife. By the way, verse 16 is a passage that in other translations, like New American Standard says, the Lord God hates divorce. This is another way this gets translated, but the conclusion is the same. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one who he should protect, the wife of his youth, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. What's this saying? God has a very high view of marriage. There's like no loopholes here to get out of it, okay? Um, it's a covenant. It's not just a legal contract. Legal contracts can be dissolved. It happens every day in our courts. People dissolve their marriages. But that's not what God intended. Um, Marriage, uh, thirdly, marriage by God designed was not to be torn apart by divorce. Jesus said, verse 9, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. These are the words of Jesus. This is not in the Old Testament. This is what Jesus said. Let no man separate. And the word for separate here is to divorce. It's to tear, like tearing one's flesh. The idea of two becoming one is the idea that lives are so intertwined and melded together that the only way that it, it can... Uh, come apart is if it's just torn in two. That's why divorce is so painful because people give their lives, they give themselves totally each other and then it's just all up for grabs. Marriage by God design was not to be torn apart by divorce. The Apostle Paul taught this in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 11. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, uh, a wife must not separate from her husband. Now, Paul isn't saying, well, Jesus said this, and I said this, and Jesus is more important. He's just saying, this is what Jesus said. This is what I'm saying. He's just making a distinction so everybody's clear. But to carry the same weight because he's speaking for God. To the married, I give this commanded, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. So again, Scripture has a very high view of marriage. We tend to bring it down just like our culture. Divorce rate among Christians is just about the same as non-Christians. And now, uh, let's go to the hard part. 
more hard part, number three, the complexities about divorce, plan B, verses 10 through 12. This is the last verses, but a lot to say. Question, Mark 10, 10. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. Good, this, they finally, so they've been out in the public. Jesus has been teaching a large crowd. Now he goes into a house, and he gets, the disciples get the chance to ask questions. The thing is, we don't know what they ask, but we know what Jesus answers. In Matthew 19, verses 10 through 12, this happens at the same incident, Matthew 19. Thank you. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. The disciples said this. They get it. This is really serious. How can we do that? How can we be faithful? How can we keep our marriage covenant? Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given, verse 12, uh, for there are eunuchs who were born that way, people born to singlehood. Uh, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. That's not a good situation. Sometimes um, people made slaves, castrated them, and put them in charge of a harem. And so by castrating them, they felt they were creating a safe environment. They were made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who accepts should accept it. Some people are willing to be single and choose to be single for the kingdom of God, and that's their choice. Um, so Jesus' point is some people ought not marry. Those who have been given singleness. Complexities, verses 11 and 12. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. This is how big, big of a deal it is. Divorce. Because if you divorce your wife and marry somebody else, get remarried, you then commit adultery. Why? Because you are bound before God. There is a relationship before God that you are tied to, and it's sealed. Um, marriage creates a real covenantal bond between the husband and wife. It's not just a legal contract. Verse 12, if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. And what Jesus is doing is he's treating men and women equally. The Pharisees did not treat men and women equally. So, are there exceptions? And the answer is yes. There are exceptions. Let's look at those. Oftentimes, people just, let's start with the exceptions, because I want the exception. Exceptions are last. Matthew 5, verses 31 through 32. Jesus said, It has been said, Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That's Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. That's the teaching of the first century religious leaders in Israel. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except, there's an exception clause, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So there is an exception. And the exception is if there is marital unfaithfulness. If one party commits sexual immorality, what is Jesus saying here? It kills the marriage. It breaks the marriage. And, um, and in that case, 
Jesus makes an exception. Um, so marriage is to be permanent. Marriage bonds are permanent. There is an exception, and that's if a partner is sexually unfaithful. In the case of the innocent spouse, that spouse may remarry. The bonds have been broken in God's eyes, and they may remarry. The guilty party is not free to remarry. Um, And this passage is teaching that remarriage without legitimate grounds for divorce is to commit adultery. You don't have a right to sleep with somebody else. That's what the passage is saying. Okay. There's one more consideration, and that's uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 and 13. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. This is something new from Paul. Something came up after Jesus. This is after Jesus has gone to heaven. Something came up in the church when Christianity began to spread. What happened? There were married couples where one person became a follower of Christ and the other person had not become a follower of Christ and they were in a spiritually mixed marriage. The Apostle Paul is speaking to this something new. He says, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. What's this? This is a very high view of marriage. Marriage is to be permanent. Uh, Verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. What does it mean if the brother or sister leaves? It means if they leave the marriage, if they divorce and walk out of the marriage, if the unbeliever does that, the believer can let them go. The believer is now free of that. The bonds are broken. The believer is free. And as I understand Scripture, they would then be free to remarry. Brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. Um, One of the things we talked about uh, last week, we talked about the way of the kingdom. Man's ways are not God's ways. When it comes to marriage and divorce, man's ways are not God's ways. Jesus reminds us that marriage was established by God. God designed marriage to be based on covenant promises till death do us part. Divorce violates God's standard and brings much grief and pain. Some of you know, um, Sue and I are currently, uh, our oldest daughter is uh, going through a divorce. I stood up with them 25 years ago in July and walked them through their wedding vows. And today, our son-in-law is divorcing our daughter. With that, tremendous amount of grief and pain and hardship and uh, financial stress. The Bible says there are two occasions when divorce is permitted in the Bible, in my understanding. One is when an unbeliever leaves, divorces a believing partner, and when a spouse has been sexually unfaithful. Those are the two 
cases. And in both cases, they are free to remarry. The innocent party is free to remarry. So I understand the Bible. There are no other grounds for divorce. As you may know, Wisconsin is a no-fault divorce state. You can get a divorce in Wisconsin if both parties affirm under oath that their marriage is irretrievably broken or if the couple lives apart continuously for 12 months before the action is taken, the court may rule that the marriage is irretrievably broken. So legally, it's pretty easy for a Christian to get divorced in Wisconsin and to get remarried in Wisconsin. However, that's not what God intended. So my purpose today is I want to raise the value of marriage. We need to do it for our 20-somethings and our teenagers and our kids that are coming. We need to do it for our families. We need to do it for our married couples. I'm not here to bash anybody who's experienced divorce. Uh, If you have failed in your marriage because of your own responsibility... There's no sin God doesn't forgive. There is no sin God doesn't forgive. Now, it may be that you've never asked forgiveness. Sometimes people are so proud, even Christians are so proud, they disagree with God, but they don't think they should be married. All I want to say is, if you have a responsibility and you've never confessed that to God, just confess it to God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. And then... You just walk with God. And if you're married, you be the best marriage partner you can be, okay? I'm not here to bash anybody who's experienced a very difficult situation. Um, When you think about marriage, I want to say something positive. Marriage is God's primary way of expressing his love to his people. The primary way that I experience love from God is from my wife, Sue. The primary way that Sue experiences love from God is from me. I am the one God has put in her life almost 24-7. And I'm called to love her as Jesus loved the church. Agape love, sacrificial love, God-empowered love. And I'm the one that ends up in her life more than any other human being. Now, God loves her, and he's going to love her no matter what I do, but he's going to use me first. And he's going to use her first to love me. That's what he designed for marriage. And, you know, it's impossible to keep wedding vows apart from walking with Christ. As I walk with Christ, God's love works through me out to my wife, Sue, and she gets to experience that. As she walks with Christ... God's love works through here, and guess what? I receive it, and it's awesome to be married to a person like Sue, okay? That's what God intended. Um, And God is the one who enables us, and God is the one who's going to enable you to keep your wedding vows. That's why it's so important to walk with Christ. It's not just like a little magical formula. It's just the way God designed it, and it really works. So let's hold marriage in high regards. Okay, I want to end with a story. 
Um, in October 2011, Gordon Yeager, 94, and his wife, Norma, 90 years old, left their home in Marshalltown, Iowa, to go shopping. However, because of an automobile accident on their way, they ended up in the emergency room, both with serious injuries, broken bones, and near death. And so um, the nurses realized how serious this was and that there wasn't really much more they were going to be able to do, and so they wheeled them into the room together so that husband and wife could hold hands. And so um, Gordon, 94, and Norma, 90 years old, held hands together, and their immediate family was surrounding them. Their son, Dennis Yeager, said, She was saying, Her chest hurt. What's wrong with Dad? Even though laying there like that, she was worried about Dad, and his back was hurting, and he was asking about Mom. Gordon died at 3.38 p.m., holding his wife's hands, wife's hand. Their son, Dennis, said, It was really strange. They were holding hands, and Dad stopped breathing, and I couldn't figure out what was going on because the heart monitor was still going. And we were like, he isn't breathing. How does he still have a heartbeat? The nurse checked and said that because they were holding hands, it's going, it's going through them. Her heart was beating through him and picking it up. At 4.38 p.m., one hour later, Norma passed away. Dennis Yeager said, they just love being together. They were old-fashioned. They believed in marriage till death do us part. Dennis added, I don't believe there was a big secret to their marriage. Sometimes one or the other would get mad, but they worked everything out. In the end, they chose each other, and that was it. They were committed. I think that'd be a great way to go. Till death do us part. Let's stand and pray. Father, we're grateful um, how you have designed marriage and family. We don't always do it well. God, may we appreciate uh, how you've designed marriage and the love that a husband and wife are to have for each other. Father, help us who are married to practice that love and kindness and forgiveness. Grow our marriages strong so that we can shine brightly for you and others may see it. Father, have us be mindful of how we treat our mates, how we uh, live as an example before our kids and before others. Thank you for forgiveness when we failed. Thank you that you forgive divorce. You forgive unkindness and rudeness and self-centeredness. We acknowledge that we all sin and we all fail. And we're all grateful for forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.